It's Zach Langley Kiki. I'm so popular, and tonight I am joined by my mother and one of two minds behind my favorite podcast of all time to discuss Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King's The Comeback. Hi, who are you? Hi, I'm Jack. Just Jack, not Jack the Perfume Nationalist. The Never. Most cringe. I don't want to be called that ever again. It's really upsetting. Um, yeah, just Jack. And you're one of the first people to like just put me my credit on your episode as Jack. Just Jack. Just Jack. And uh, it bears repeating. What, what are you doing? I am drinking Stoli. I just unpacked the day's perfume orders and sprayed myself with a bunch of Sugi. <laughs> my favorite in that little yellow bottle yes and now i feel like i'm walking through a wonderful um shen megami tensei city park beautiful um and last time you were on the show for my mishima episode a little over a year ago uh, recorded at the same time um albeit vaguely different location on my end but i asked you then uh, why are you following me but this time i'll ask you why are we friends jack um because i just absolutely adore you and you make me so happy and uh i love having this like extra layer of communication of just like listening to your show and whatever you're doing um i just find you delightful and you're one of my favorite people on earth i'm deeply <laughs> obsessed with you you are my mother <laughs> yes uh, um, baby girl yeah baby girl doll like i um i was reflecting on this i re-listened to our mishima episode and um something really beautiful to me about our developed friendship over the past uh, 13 months or so is that every time we've spoken to each other with voices has been recorded and is available <laughs> for the public to listen so the trajectory of our friendship can be absolutely observed as art from the Mishima episode to discussing um, Isabel Huppert movies, uh, followed by my favorite podcast episode I've ever recorded, which is our manic Elizabeth Taylor streetcar named Desire Death Elizabeth Drive. Elizabeth takes off. <laughs> Elizabeth takes off, uh, controlled pig out and answering the gay question um, before we go through the Paul Morrissey movies uh, and then end beautifully with Amanda Milius. Um, explicating tusk and uh, to me this is kind of uh the the following note in um my sort of futurist manifesto of, of it's uh, a limited event series as it they is. call mini series now um it's yeah you could take all of our episodes that we've recorded together and just listen to them straight through and you would find a really lovely narrative of gay friendship <laughs> this is the way I want gay people to be friends, which is um discovering someone else who's read an obscure book like Juliet or, or anything else, and then discovering getting trapped. someone else who is on their level of like heinous perversion, and just like you push each other to go further and further. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely, it's horsewoman dog. Like <laughs> <laughs> just like uh, every time you just go further and further. I'm like, yes, queen. Yeah, more, more, more. Yeah, I'm sure. Like any one of these days it's gonna get really bad when i really break out the pedophilia takes but we'll oh, leave yeah. that uh when you um let's see you've you've had your like initial kind of cancellation right mm -hmm. like the initial like where you first see a bunch of like anonymous random negative attention about you mm -hmm. and you're like oh how do i not control this 
you'll have lots of baby girl. You'll have, you'll have lots of uh, <laughs> ramp as, as someone uh, professional in the industry. You'll have lots of ramping up cancellations where it gets bigger and bigger. And you have to train your mind to uh, like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, like tune it all out and pilot the Ava as the voices get louder and louder, yep. uh, decrying you. And what's incredible is that, I, I mean, what, what's happened to me was that I got excommunicated from a J-pop Twitter community. It was like the worst, <laughs> was the, the first big thing. And then after that, it was just a bunch of frightening, like, transgender women on um, specific websites upset that I had Dasha on my show. And then uh, thereafter upset that I have you on my show and continue to, um, quote, orbit you, as it were. Oh, yeah, I know what orbiting means. And it means... Uh... The quote tweeting screenshots of my tweets i guess and like sending demons my way something like that but i they, mean they were mad about dasha it just like blows my mind that people are mad about dasha and then they were like oh. and why is she going on this podcast of someone who mm. has less than 1000 followers <laughs> oh gosh because she's like a cool person who as she said herself, like, gives back, like, you know, they, they've had podcast success, so they give back to other people. Um, yeah, it, it, people are, I mean, it goes without saying, but people are such, like, jealous haters. All of that is rooted in jealousy because they're not stars. Nope. They don't have it. They don't have the magic. They are not all they it. can do. <laughs> they are not it. And all they can do is be ninnies, be mealy mouth ninnies and try to like cancel people. And they're the Puritans and uh, they suck and they'll be forgotten by history. And uh, people like us will be admired. Absolutely. They can't stop us from uh, furthering our incredible descent into the deepest reaches of a perversion together nothing's and, uh, gonna stop us now no morality way. and perversion it's the same i feel like we're both like profoundly moral people but also we just have a healthy interest in perversion and what that does for society and civilization and we are in the most uh puritanical anti-sex anti-art era that humanity has ever experienced including like the victorian era anything before that so um we just we see it we can pull out and see the spenglerian waves of history and um the haters don't like that yeah and it's like you said it's merely because they have no charisma nothing going on to make themselves interesting like they don't even have the decoration to presume an interesting life or invent one and, it's um, really weird how everyone who hates us is a failed podcaster. Fascinating. Fa it's really interesting how that works out. <laughs> this oh, this is perfect because I was trying to figure out what exactly is the reason that I wanted to discuss HBO's The Comeback with you. And <laughs> it is because I think I share a deep empathy and identification as well as hatred and fear of the Valerie Cherish. And she is someone who has also become deeply resentful and bizarre because of her own critical failures in her media, 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 media. Um, you know, Jane, I'm sorry, I just, I, um, I don't want to look like an idiot, you know, and this is supposed to be reality. Yeah, well, I just think that your reality could be more excited. 
Just one more, just just for safety. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bigger. Okay. You know what, Jane? You and I have to talk. Can you turn the cameras off, please? No. Then I'm done okay, with this part. Okay? Because I can't. I have a table read. You know. Congratulations from your When you asked me to do the comeback, I was so happy because the comeback is like part of my innate like language, like my cinematic language. Like when you're in a long-term relationship with someone, you develop a language based on certain media. And like my relationship with my boyfriend is like safe, this, the comeback ghost world, um, single white female all of these things. And um, when I first discovered the comeback, it was in about 2007, 2008, when nobody cared about it. And there were a million shrink wrapped new copies for $5 at every half price books. Like they just gotten like shipments of this shit. Um, and I was like, oh, that looks like it could be interesting. I threw it on the pile. And then I watched it and thought it was amazingly good and amazingly crazy and like complicated and disturbing. And then as time went on, it developed more of a cult following, especially among gays, as you would expect. Um, and the return of it in 2014, nine years later, was like as unexpected a reprisal of any like intellectual property as uh, like twin peaks the return 25 years later like absolutely I, I could not believe that it happened no i i still can't either um and what for me my first experience with this was i think maybe a little bit before i graduated college and um it was when i was first watching hbo girls and i suddenly became aware that like great televised art exists on hbo <laughs> and mm. so i like went through as much HBO content as I could. Like, I watched all of The Leftovers as well, which I think has aged kind of poorly, but um, the comeback immediately spoke to me because, like Girls, it is the most abject and frightening and uncomfortable viewing experience I've almost had with any art ever. It's absolute torture, and it's so much worse. I hadn't rewatched it for a few years, and stuff like this gets more and more disturbing as you get older and closer to death. And you can't write things off as just like a joke. Um, but rewatching it this time, uh, I it really felt as torturous as a Lars von Trier movie, um, especially the second season, which gets darker and darker and darker and less comedic. And um, I fully like ugly cried at the finale episode like i was really upset by it and my boyfriend was like what's the matter are you upset about something else <laughs> I was like, no i'm just i feel like i'm dying watching this um uh but it's so it's so 
complicated and so beautiful. And when this came out, it was like during the peak of like the golden age of television when like Sopranos was still on. Um, Sex and the City was, I, I guess it had just ended or it was still on. Like HBO was still like a very hot place for like art television to happen, uncensored art television. And um, this was just so like busy and complicated that people didn't really care about it when it came out. But the satirical edge that it had and the uh, metafictional uh, quality of it that really predicted the kind of things that they would do on American Horror Story, especially like the Roanoke season where it's like a show within a show within a show within a show. Um, and also the general like complicated woman trend of the late 2000s early 2010s which i really like there was like young adult with charlie's theron there was rachel getting married uh there was girls which is the you know of course the crowning achievement of the complicated woman stuff mm-hmm. um and enlightened um but it was just very ahead in all of those ways and i've always worshipped lisa kudrosh i've always like I like friends. Um, I was never like a fanatic about it, but I always thought that she elevated it because she was just so cool. Uh, because I worship Romeo and Michelle and um the opposite of sex and stuff like that. Absolutely. And uh anything she, she does. She is completely fascinating and such a wonderful and well-rounded actress. It's unbelievable. And of course, because people only know her in friends they don't have a whole picture of her true capacity but like having seen like Romy and michelle and like anything else that she's done or like web therapy and stuff you can really see that she is like truly a powerful dramatic actress no matter what she's in and i would do anything to like have her replace uma thurman and like a nymphomaniac and stuff oh yeah it's she she's so good at what she does that it like almost doesn't register like like a dog whistle like but the the power of acting ability required to be constantly on the edge where like the whole first season she looks like she's about to burst into tears at any moment (laughs) like uh physically like she like physically her face is like puffing up and uh it looks like someone who was trying not to vomit. No, it's <laughs> like, exactly that. <laughs> I guess it, to introduce the concept of the show, um, season one follows Lisa Kudrow um, as she plays Valerie Cherish, who is a washed up, never that popular um, actress in a sitcom called I'm It. And she finally gets her chance to uh, come back to fame uh, through an even worse reality tv show called the comeback that follows her appearance on a uh studio mandated awful sitcom called room and board uh and it's b-o-r-e-d (laughs) b-o-r-e-d isn't that cute isn't that cute and she just lives her whole life in this season um getting progressively more humiliated and degraded um and it becomes so bleak and distressing that 
it becomes one of the most alienating pieces of art I've ever seen in just the first season alone. Exactly. And the thing about it is that it's not just a strictly sympathetic, simple depiction of her where you feel so sorry for this woman who is the victim of this evil Hollywood machine that has made her what she is. She is loathsome at so many points and you fluctuate between deep sympathy and liking her and just absolutely hating her. Like when she does, when they're filming the first episode of Room and Board and she does the, give her another take, give Give her another another take. take. I just want to fucking kill her because (laughs) it's so like, she's so like unprofessional and like, uh, self-absorbed and yeah, it's it's not simple the way you feel about her. No, and no matter how many times I go back, I still have to like recoil watching this, and I can't watch it on my laptop because I will physically move the laptop away from me. Like, <laughs> like in Inland Empire when there's that jump scare, um, like that was probably like one of the few times I ever like ripped my earbuds out and like thrown my computer across the room. But watching the <laughs> comeback, like the give her another take or like her constant like horrendous ability to not remember anyone's names and then trying to play it off i just like want to snap my computer in half and run away and her condescending uh treatment of juna where uh, you know juna is the hot young star who's getting all of the attention so she swoops in and befriends her gets the closest to her and uh, takes on this like maternal role like oh baby girl you know it's it's so fake and so disgusting and um you know exactly what is going through her mind is that she's like criminally jealous of this like hot young girl for sopping up all the attention so she wants to get so close to her enemies um and once you recognize that behavior especially in women and especially in like women with like a public image it's so like foul and i love the large arc of her relationship with Juna where the tables are turned later on when Val finally has an artistic achievement and she's liked by people and she can like brag about it and Juna like confronts her at the party and is like I just really don't like what you did um I thought we had a friendship and uh, all this stuff like that relationship between them is so like passive aggressive and like tense and subtle. (laughs) It's beautiful. It is incredible that this show manages any subtlety at all because like the subject matter is so obvious. And this is honestly a really wonderful sequel to our discussion on like day of the locust, because um, this also kind of approaches its subject matter of like evil Hollywood without um, any sort of a particular nuance, but because it goes at it with like such a hammer, um, it ends up doing less powerful like criticism of like the Hollywood system, but actually like reveals like the eternal sexual persona that is Valerie Cherish. Yes, absolutely. And you like rarely see anyone at Valerie Cherish's level of fame depicted in any kind of like self-effacing like Hollywood like satirizing itself type thing Mm -hmm. Uh, because 
the details that they put into it, like I'm It ran for four seasons and it was like 97, 98 episodes, which is right under the 100 episode syndication uh, like qualifier where, where they will rerun your show. So there are lots of shows like this that are like make a splash. Like the OC is one where it was a huge hit that everyone was talking about in the early 2000s but it only ran for four seasons and so like misha barton and these people like that on that show are this level of like c-list d-list celebrity um and the like at that time reality television was still a very new thing this was 2005 so it was a like lot the of Osborne this... show, um, like the Osbournes, uh... Osbournes, Anna Nicole, Anna Nicole yeah. uh, Survivor, Fear Factor, like it was all like kind of like the early mean shocking stuff, um, and if I have any criticism of the first season of the comeback, it's that the satire of like no one, the trope of no one wanting to be involved in the reality show is not it doesn't seem accurate like no, you know there's the recurring theme of everybody being like you're you're filming a reality show gross and i it, it, like everybody would be hungry to get in on that i feel like yeah absolutely and that's something that the show also didn't have foresight about necessarily was that reality tv was going to become even more monstrous than it is in this show like um, and in different ways, like this has a, you know, the, the finale of season one shows that they've uh, been taking all the worst moments of her and then playing it up for comedy, which is, of course, like the obvious uh, <laughs> result of this. But like the actual like sinister reality TV that exists now, which is like Selling Sunset, which I love, is like um, all terrifying because it's people who have like produced themselves into uh, really like malfunctioning and not convincing portrayals of themselves so you feel like you're watching a bunch of like hollow dolls bashing against each other and like clattering um and this show kind of imagines that it's people who reveal themselves too much right uh the current formula of reality tv is so streamlined and also people know that it's fake so they're willing to accept that like the ge- the average person knows that things like on the Kardashians when they like meet up to eat a salad that that's like fake. But yeah. back when like the Hills, which is one of the masterpieces of reality television, which approaches like Inland Empire levels because of the, the, the time that it came at where um, all of these girls in their early twenties didn't really know what they were doing. And also it was like the first show that didn't have the obtrusive like interview segments where they explain the narrative. It just shows them like meeting up and it's kind of like weird and creepy. Like since people are familiar with the artifice of reality television and like the assembly line nature of it at this point, it's, you can't really shock them in the same way. Whereas early reality television was all about taking real people and having them humiliate themselves in the way of pornography and uh, finding villains and heroes. Like early Survivor is all like 
extremely brutal about the characterization of like certain people as villains, which they don't do anymore. Like current Survivor, it, everybody is just kind of like an ambiguous hero. Uh, it's you know uh, up to date with the latest like social justice programming code. Um, it's just that initial era of meanness uh can never be recreated like the meanness required for something like the Anna Nicole show where the whole concept at the time was that she's this fat has been who is addicted to drugs and is you know uh exhibiting herself on e um but she revealed the true beauty of her character on that show um, but yeah, it's it's just the fact that it's streamlined into something safe and kind of like productive and profitable means that you can't understand the meanness of reality TV at the time. That was like humiliating Valerie Cherish. And just like we talked about on the Mishma episode, like Drag Race is the absolute biggest icon of this right like that show used to be fucking vicious and cruel up until season oh. six like it used to be absolutely abject and evil towards the people who decide to make the satanic deal to appear on television as crossdressers and fully used every moment that they could to create these grand sweeping moral tales of good and evil and showing people at their their worst um, and now everyone is, you know, little ravished angels like Blair St. Clair just, you know, floating above the world with their tragic, you know, rape narratives. Whereas something like the comeback in early seasons of Drag Race, like, fully function because of how abject and cruel the editors and creators are. Right. And the early seasons of Drag Race, before it became this massive hit... Uh, it was literally a low-budget, mean-spirited satire of America's Next Top Model and Project Runway, which were mean-spirited shows in their own way. Like, the early seasons of Project Runway are fucking masterpieces that are, like, lost like tears and rain now and only available on DVD. Um, and America's Next Top Model as well, where it was just, like, cheap, cheap, cheap hotel, like, conference room uh salacious porno vibes where it's just on video and like the first season of america's next top model uh they're making all these like dumb ass women like po like their challenges to pose on a freezing new york like rooftop in like <laughs> zero degree weather in bikinis um juliet yeah, it very it's sadistic and like evil and like Tyra is this wonderful like Marquis de Sade character who like doesn't you know she's just viewed as god in the universe of America's Next Top Model but like that kind of satire that RuPaul was initially doing is totally lost now because after you know season 6 or 7 it became along with the larger culture this social justice lgbtq acceptance narrative thing which was boring because before that this was a show that rewarded sharon needles who wore confederate flag bathing suits whose name was sharon needles yeah and swastikas and signed her headshots with the n-word hard r and 
that's the show that was lost. <laughs> exactly. And it's tragic because um, when you fully lean into just being like cruel and abject with your subjects, you end up actually like representing reality in a much truer way, which is something that happens with the comeback all the time, which is that um, because this show is like both cruel to like the Valerie character, like both in terms of like a metafictional sense and within the show, like it ends up like peeling back all of these very uncanny layers about, you know, like you were mentioning like her relationship with Juna earlier, but there's so much like good stuff about race relations here and like the actual way that like people like interact in terms of like approaching like people who are outside of their cultures and how people like fail and embarrass themselves all the time with it. Oh yes. The depiction of the inscrutable, her relationship with the inscrutable maid the Mexican Esperanza. Maid, Esperanza, who is really like sinister. Um, say Todd Haynes Stafe, my favorite movie ever, is obviously a huge influence on this. So many like direct plot points from Safe are carried over to like show how like empty and disconnected Valerie Cherish is, such as that she has this like law blank lawyer husband and that she has like a stepchild that she's not genetically related to she has the red hair and this was before safe was everywhere as an influence um safe was uh and continues to be a trendy influence for prestige television shows like the mat the finale of mad men where they go to the new age camp was clearly taken from safe and after it was put out by Criterion in about 2015, 2016, it developed this whole new life where everybody was talking about safe. But um, the depiction of the reality of uh, the treatment of servants and uh, the like weird relationship that a rich white person has with an immigrant servant is like, amazing here oh it's incredible all of the people who are like service workers or like servants of the upper class as it were here like actually like exist in like total reality and i always think about esperanza like as they accidentally like catch um some of valerie's empty lawyer uh husband mark like he has a porn tape that's like lying around and she says look it's so old it was sweet back then look the cover is worn and esperanza says the covers are worn <laughs> all she wants is to humiliate them it's the great like victorian dynamic of uh fearing your servants like the servants are the ones who will betray you and then when she brings <laughs> her three daughters to valerie's viewing party to miss valerie and they're, and they're all, all wearing keys like, and right? yes <laughs> yeah and she's always like putting on lipstick her um uh on the uh, b yoga episode where mark trips on the treadmill uh esperanza is especially sinister because like <laughs> she just seems to like watching this woman suffer which as a you know service worker who deals with rich people all the time obviously i understand <laughs> oh but God. it's just it, it, like there there were late later attempts at um doing the safe thing and making it politically correct like in safe uh, Julianne Moore is totally disconnected from her maids. Uh, she just like 
yelps at them helplessly like where did you put my phone book pour me a glass of milk all of this stuff and then in the early 2010s there was like some movie with jennifer aniston called cake where they try to make um the mexican maid character like a fully formed complicated character oh god totally simple and it's so cringe and so lame uh whereas in like the comeback and in safe it's just brutal and realistic yeah and like it's it's so refreshing to watch something where like the kind of <laughs> the scheming maid is like we don't have to empathize with her because we already understand her plight like we don't need to be condescended upon to like understand like why her life is difficult and it lets her be like a shady little sinister bitch but also the scheming immigrant is like something that everybody who works has to deal with every single day like if you have to call a customer service line and it's just like somebody in india (laughs) you know like and you can't understand a word they're saying um it's the same thing and uh if dealing with any kind of like uh just service workers at all like this dynamic is played out over and over again it's just you're not allowed to depict it in media no it's insane like the this entire texture of our day-to-day universe has just been completely like annihilated out of all media and david lynch is like one of the few people who's even dared to like kind of touch it at all and so watching it happen in the comeback over and over again like between all of these interactions is just so satisfying um and i uh i also think that in terms of like with interactions with (laughs) underrepresented people the comeback has the most frightening depiction of gay people ever created uh wait which one Mickey. Oh, 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 God. I've blocked it out. I'm so traumatized. <laughs> yeah, the, the big theme of my rewatch recently was that I'd realized I'm just Mickey. I like wear like the uh, big black clothing and uh, I'm like uh, worshiping like pathetic divas and just kind of like slowly losing my mind. But the depiction of Mickey is like one of the most brutal and accurate depictions of gay aging ever in the entirety of cinema and it's also sympathetic like you know the the end result the the like final like humanizing gesture that they allow for valerie cherish is that she leaves the awards show to go be with mickey when she thinks that he's dying but mickey is also repulsive mickey is disgusting she val is um um, like disgusted by mickey's sexuality the whole time that's like a great like running theme like her disgust at smoking um is whenever like it comes up that mickey is gay she's like really uncomfortable and (laughs) just doesn't want to hear about it she cannot Uh, properly interact with him about it at all because sometimes she'll just say it in completely inappropriate context and other times she just flees and runs away and i love that mickey's homosexuality becomes uh evident as he becomes like senile like and just like literally quits like having full capacity of like his brain <laughs> like when, when he's just like hiring that like mexican prostitute like at the end or like oh, yeah but that guy or whatever like the the a big running 
joke of the first season is that they don't talk about that Nikki was gay, which is realistic because in the 90s, like through the early 2000s, like being gay was like forbidden enough <laughs> or like looked down enough that it was something about people that you like didn't really talk about in polite company unless you were in certain elite circles. Um, and now if you see like period pieces depicting the 90s or the 80s or mm -hmm. whatever, they'll always have like the sympathetic woman character who just like knows that her friend is gay and she understands all of it. But the like uncomfortable, like unspoken thing between Valerie and Nikki is so realistic and so beautiful. And like, that's exactly the type of man, like if you're my age, you likely have an uncle that's basically Mickey. And he was often mysteriously married to a woman and divorced and it was it was never had mysterious health problems and it was never stated that he was gay but you knew and everybody tacitly accepted it but it wasn't a big thing that everyone talked about right you no. know i mean this kind of like a cultural mode is like completely forgotten about and and has been replaced instead with the very like clean sanitized like white picket fence like gay marriage narrative which nobody likes obviously and and that this came out like in fucking 2005 and they were showing gay people like this is just so shocking to me i mean michael patrick king who also like developed um sex in the city and is like kind of like a pre Ryan Murphy, Ryan Murphy in his way. Like, it, he seems to be really sinister and evil himself for like doing oh, this depiction. Oh my God. I just learned that Mickey is actually dead. Yeah. I, I, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. He passed I, away. I mean, part of the brilliance of the casting here is that he looks like he's going to die at any moment. In at both any seasons. moment. He, and he looks terrible. He, he, looks, he looks so sickly and like yellow teeth and i like i hate talking about him in this way because i see myself in him in such a like disturbing way but like the bravery required to play a role like that and just have yourself depicted that unflatteringly especially like towards the end where mickey is sick and he's just like putting random splotches of yellow foundation on his face oh my it's god incredible it like, is he's a great actor can you <laughs> imagine like michael patrick king coming up to you and being like i have been i wrote this role with you in mind people want to think that gay aging is like anderson cooper and no like mayor pete no gay aging is actually mickey from the comeback you become this weird rotund Venus of Villendorf, <laughs> like woman character swathed in black, which I already am. And somebody likes you for your eccentricities, hopefully, but like it's overall a, a tragic path. No, like, it's, it's very bleak. And it, it is, you know, sweet and a, a, a light in the darkness that he has his fucked up relationship with Valerie Cherish because at least he has that. But otherwise, it's just like him, you know, 
wobbling around the set of this truly shitty sitcom, like, attending to this woman's hair and making these disturbed little gay quips at everything. Oh, I love anything leather! And his apartment, when it shows that, I've been in that apartment and had sex with those guys so many times. Mm -hmm. Where you go in the old, like, 30... In my case, probably 39-year-old through 49-year-old gay apartment where they have, like, weird, like, Catholic icons and, like, diva stuff. And that was the exact apartment of the aging gay that I have had tragic sex with so many times. That was a comeback of the nest of spiders. (laughs) It is brutal. It is... Like, the only things that I can think of that are more brutal in their depiction of the life of the homosexual are boys in the band and cruising. Um, this Because at least Faggots is funny. I mean, and this is, I mean, this is comedy. Yeah. And, like, I do find, like, Mickey endearing, but he is terrifying. Yes, and, uh, I mean... When you recognize those traits and everything about Mickey is like what you fear most about yourself, like he's actually just like a fat guy wearing large black clothing in this like dusty apartment surrounded by like dogs, dogs and iconography of divas and all of this stuff and that's how he ends up it's so i i know that like the depiction of lena dunham in girls is like the nightmare version of this for like women yeah um, no doubt and the depiction of like any number of like aging spinsters <laughs> miss pity pat types is like what every woman like knows they could lapse into and it's their worst fear but mickey is truly even though we have this like heartwarming ending where someone cares about him he is the most like brutally unflattering like gay character I've ever seen. And when you mentioned, like, having been in these apartments before, it, like, clicked with me as well that I have been, like, in the exact same apartment when I was, like, 18 and going on Craigslist. (laughs) And, like, here's this man whose, like, child is being taken out by his ex-wife. He's, like, 52, overweight. Like, he has, like, those, like, kind of, like, cartoonish, like, Bible animals, like, on his bookshelf. All all the oomphies, (gasps) all the gays who have such high self-esteem on they're Twitter doomed right to this now. you you should know sweeties that this is gonna happen to you too mickey is coming and he's coming like from inside of you like in nightmare and elm street 2 when like you're not gonna be posting cute little selfies with the like dasha like caption <gasps> about like uh how you felt cute today like no you're gonna be mickey bitch in 10 years oh my god now i'm shaking because i definitely can see like this happening to me like me being just like so you rattled this larry kramer and like andrew uh andrew hollering yeah yeah you read all those books so you know that it's coming it's coming when it actually comes you're like i'm not ready (laughs) i'm like and the worst part about this is that i'll be aging and what if i'm still doing drag and i'm like mickey (laughs) (laughs) well i mean think 
cracked like, actor you, to a degree you have to like lean into it like uh, like yes i'm a uh, i'm a dusty queen in my mid-30s uh surrounding myself with miss havisham perfume bottles um but also i hope that i'm giving something positive to people like like gay people can't have children so like their only uh a, their only path of like reproduction or like continuance is through art yes so even though you become mickey you become the much like women become sad shadows of their former selves where you just become the mother and the grandmother uh, that happens to you as a gay and all you can do is hope that you have created something that has resonance and inspires other people oh should we take a break there and have a cigarette yeah let's and then do we can it do season two in a big way that okay. was so beautiful jack oh my god <laughs> i can't stop thinking about it and like looking over and there is a disturbing amount of like Oscar Langley saw you like merchandise in my house and it's gonna come back to haunt me. No, Zach, you're only 25. I right? know, I know. I, when I was 25, I thought it was like the Katy Perry teenage dream. <laughs> like, like, I was like, I will never grow older. And then now I'm 34, and thank God I have a podcast that people like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was something to cling to besides the Miss Havisham wedding cakes. Oh, okay. Cigarette and let's do season okay. two. Right. First, I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights just feeling sorry for myself. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. And so you're back. 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 Season two of the comeback <laughs> on HBO. Um, twenty fourteen. In twenty fourteen, this is absolutely like you said earlier, like a Twin Peaks twenty five years later, beautiful moment of a uh, of art somehow managing to prevail against everything else around it. I think you know Michael Patrick King being uh, such a prophylic uh, television creator is is a wonderful thing, and I imagine that maybe in. 20 years, Ryan Murphy is going to be able to do similar stuff with bizarre intellectual properties. But having watched Valerie try to try and fail to create the narrative around her and fall victim to it time and time again, um, when the first season concludes and it shows that she actually has like stumbled into exactly what she wants by having all this control relinquished from her, it seems like there's nothing left to say. But surprisingly... Season two doubles down and is infinitely darker and worse. Oh, it it's so dramatically darker. And you think that it's not going to be because it starts out with all of these meta references to like Real Housewives and how Valerie like was on Real Housewives and was cut off because she couldn't handle it. And um, then it just... It, it doubles the amount of like metafictional aspects, but it also like 
takes all of the characters way more seriously than season one did where the overall plot line of Polly G this writer who uh, looks like a less attractive version of Sam Hyde and also reminds me of Sam Hyde in his relationships to women um, uh, his torture of Valerie is like the central plot line of the first half of season two but it also leads to her getting respect for the first time as a dramatic actress uh, which is exactly how things happen because Valerie is game to do whatever um Valerie a more like considered and thoughtful person than her would have said no to doing seeing red the hbo uh limited series, series limited series uh written by Polly g about his time uh lusting after and hating valerie cherish but she does it because she's game for anything and then she actually gets the um creative acclaim for it and kind of like self-actualizes um and it after about like episode three it just gets darker and darker to the point where as i said i was just like ugly crying at the at the (laughs) ending it felt like nymphomaniac no, I, I feel the same way. And, you know, especially like in season one, like we do get, you know, those graceful like moments of humanity and Valerie, like when it's revealed that she has uh, the rod in her back from the scoliosis and um, wasn't like allowed on the um, allowed on the hockey team. And uh, when she keeps having to fall over and over again in that degrading cupcake suit, like seeing her continue to put herself through so much hell, it's incredible to see like that manifest like you said into her actually like becoming sort of like a Kirsten Dunst or like Bjork in a Lars von Trier movie where she actually becomes um artistically inclined because she's totally given up all of her will um but the process of her getting there is so fucked up and I can never stop thinking about her in that terrible green room like in when they're shooting (laughs) an animated sequence and she's totally in green saying i'm eating your dreams polly g as she is like it becomes totally like psychedelic yes it does like super real and surreal um the and what's amazing about season two to me just like with twin peaks the return is that this would not make sense to anyone who was not familiar with the entire story leading up to it. Like um, the confidence required in putting this out is amazing. And that's why it's so good. Um, But like Twin Peaks, the return relies on your knowledge of the first two seasons and the movie. And that's why it's so powerful that he's doing this 25 years later in time, unexpectedly. And uh, the comeback season two is similar in that way, uh, in that 
no one just casually watching this would be able to understand the layers of meaning <laughs> of all of this shit. Like no one would know who Polly G is. And by the way, before I forget, um, Tom is the hottest man that I can think of. Oh, he's like, so his voice is so people, charming. People think that gays want like the Bronze Age pervert, like Abercrombie model, like uh, sculpted abs, whatever. No, what I'm looking for when I look for porn on Pornhub is exactly Tom from the <laughs> comeback. This guy, this kind of like boy next door, like dad next door, like average, like Jewish guy, he's the hottest guy that I can fucking think of, and I can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it. he is just, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, and I also was like really struck to, he's when he, so hot, yeah, he's and the way so he treats cute. her, like so nice, he's so fucking hot <laughs> when he shows up at her at her at her watch party or when tragically he's been like reduced to like working on like a nickelodeon kids show and like <laughs> that nightmarish episode where he's working on the nickelodeon show yeah but where Polly g who was like the drug addicted like fuck up and everyone hated he has the critical acclaim uh, necessary to get this hbo show going and then tom who was the nice one who was Ott also is uh, stuck working on children's shows. Yeah, and they have that wonderful sequence when they're like getting into like an actual like fight with the man in the caterpillar suit. <laughs> um, this season of the comeback has also a lot of wonderful immigrant moments in it as well. Um, <laughs> we skipped the beady beady boys in season one, which oh is like the, the most evil characters in the whole thing. Yeah. These characters who just like show up and are totally evil and like chirping and seem completely demonic. And my favorite of all of these is when uh, Valerie and uh, her husband, they rent out properties as like, a side hustle and they have to stay at one when their house is being used for the show and there is a suicide in their houses <laughs> and they have to deal with like the landlady who they've never spoken to before. She can barely speak English and she looks like she's dying. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a sinister Asian woman who has no idea. It's Blade Runner character, you know. Oh, every like side character that appears in this season are all really, really special. And I, I love how hyper real it feels. And it is absolutely psychedelic as well. Like this show gets so deep into like the grooves of reality that it becomes really unnervingly psychedelic by the time she's like in that green room. And then by the end of the show, when the camera finally breaks away and shows her running off in a, a fantasy sequence in her Emmy dress to save dying gay Mickey. And it also like depicts so well how the art of acting actually happens, yes. which is that a kind of like stupid person uh, steps into a situation and reveals something uncanny uh, through a moment of uninhibitedness like we see on here and then everybody recognizes that because they allow themselves to be so unfiltered and so uncontrolled like Valerie allows herself to be seen in the HBO bad lighting and uh, as this like 
negative heinous character and people recognize that and that is how good acting happens so much more often than the studied type of Meryl Streep, like mm-hmm. good acting where it's someone who is like studying the method and thinks a lot about what they're doing, which I've never believed in because never. like that, the acting in like Larry Clark movies is like the best acting that I can think of because it's like real people absolutely, um, who are really unselfconscious, but Valerie finally gets what she wants through this process of humiliation um, because she just kind of like goes along with these offers that are made to her. And suddenly people are like, oh, it's really cool to see this woman, this old woman who was on a failed sitcom from 20 years ago, make herself really ugly. And that's when she wins the award. And that's also parallel to how Valerie in the second season becomes like more confident and mature because she knows she's done something that people like. So you see her even like through the, uh, the scene where like Juna is confronting her and all of this, she's very like, self-satisfied and very confident even when mark is dumping her she doesn't care because she knows that people finally respect her <laughs> for, Valerie gets for what she really wants exactly I, I think about that scene when she's auditioning for seeing red in the first episode um where she gives that really bizarre line reading when she's like well fuck you and fuck you and fuck you and it is so stirring to watch because it's exactly like you said. She's giving herself away and finally defeating the ego that she has from the first season where she has to control everything. And by just relinquishing, she becomes actually artful. And that is really the the brilliant thing about this show is that I think lots of people might read the second season as like less based or anything or that it's like kind of has like a me too element um and how it depicts like how valerie is like sexually treated on the this show this happened before me too that mm-hmm. should be stated absolutely but what's incredible is because the the theme of the show is valerie gives up control and thus gets what she wants it's actually completely in opposition to that that's what happens when um what should happen with any cinematic production and the best actors are people who are not that self-aware who have Mm -hmm. someone who can guide them enough to the end result um but they don't study the art of it enough to be self-conscious and enough to be like um overly performed and overly mechanical uh, the best actors are people like Valerie Cherish who are in a situation where someone is just kind of guiding them to essentially humiliate themselves publicly in this what way. She gets her Emmy and um, I I just am in love with the, the meta narrative of the show um, with the character of Jane, played by uh, Sarah Silverman's oh, sister. We haven't even talked about Jane. No, Jane hasn't even come up yet. Spider but... eyes. Spider eyes. <laughs> Jane is so evil. That's... Oh, yeah. 
that, that's the thing okay jane is the documentarian who is like filming it all and she's very like cool and above it and knows how to manipulate this like dumb woman and she is totally loathsome and she is totally snaky and conniving and the the narrative that they've given jane in the second season where she won an oscar for doing a holocaust lesbian documentary lesbians in the holocaust and she performatively like uh, uses it as a doorstop and like i don't care about awards and then later uh when they're trying to get into the juna's party she's like valerie is nominated like that is exactly how these people are where they pretend not to care about any of it but they are seeking that attention nonstop. and jane is this literal fucking black widow spider guiding valerie the whole way to maximize the humiliation and it's laura silverman is she's great but she's also so fucking creepy and her um during me too like she disavowed louis ck and like made a big deal about it while her sister sarah silverman was uh like i don't really care uh that louis ck jacked off in front of me i thought it was funny (laughs) (laughs) um so laura silverman seems like a really like uh nasty little character just like uh added on to the narrative baggage of this and she's just perfect what's incredible about her is in season one when it's like her first time working on like a reality tv show you can tell by the time that valerie does her poll in the back um monologue that she's like sick of what she's doing and there's a really beautiful uncanny moment where uh, she gets caught in one of the cameras in the mirror and uh, just is making the most haunted expression and then she says get off of me and when she seems to have like retired and like given up on it you think that she actually has kind of a disavowed her ways after being like so um you know disappointed with herself from like what she's done to valerie with the first iteration of the comeback but then when she starts getting a taste of that hbo recognition she becomes increasingly more controlling and disturbing than she ever was in the first season as she like intentionally help sabotage Valerie's uh, marriage with her husband so that she can get more drama for this inevitably retarded HBO documentary. Oh, her, the constant footage of Jane directing the camera people to focus in on any like misery or any like personal conflict. Um, it's something, it's like an obvious depiction of like, a, a sinister documentarian okay but it's also so fully fleshed in the way that jane is this california lesbian who gets an oscar and like pretends not to like it but all she wants is this status and she'll do anything she pretends not to care about it she becomes Valerie by the end of the second season. Jane is a way more loathsome character than Valerie, which anyone who watches this the whole way through will come away with that feeling, you know? 
Absolutely. And it, it's really incredible because she, like, takes, like, the the role that Valerie had in the first season of, like, being so obsessed with, like, this, like, fascist control over everything around her in the name of uh, seeking out something hollow. Whereas by the end of season two, Valerie, having given up her control and her womanly tendency to orga- try to attempt to organize reality in these really facile ways, like, we end up uh, with them completely switching roles and Valerie realizing her own humanity by uh, refusing to accept the award, um, not out of being, you know, just, like, a lousy, pretentious dyke, but for her real love and affection for her friend Mickey. And uh, the Jane thing is also this amazing illustration of the relationship relations between women where this like intellectual homely lesbian woman feels total contempt for this conventionally feminine attractive woman and wants to humiliate her at every <laughs> because she is not that you know absolutely uh, at every point possible so she wants to humiliate all of these conventional notions of like attractive femininity and val for all of her negative qualities she's a very attractive very charismatic woman she's very warm she she's sexually active she's sexually active she is fun she is outgoing and jane is just this illustration of the myopic lesbian intellectual like academic superiority complex where they think that kind of woman is less than them i think uh, when we come back for comeback season three i think uh jane will have transitioned honestly oh yeah she's absolutely the type that would have transitioned but the the final moment of redemption for Valerie, uh, where she's at the award show and she's learned that Mickey may be dying and she also may be winning an award. And she chooses to go navigate the nightmare landscape of Ubers and whatever to get to the hospital to get to him. And it's suddenly filmed in real cinematic style. It's no longer a reality show. Um, It's one of the most unexpected and beautiful things that I've ever seen in a narrative television program. Yeah. Because the whole, like, gist, of this kind of like humiliation like awkward like documentary style like the office kind of tv is that you feel superior to these characters and the comeback definitive definitively ended with this note of actually this woman is morally superior to you because she did this (laughs) yeah she she went to find mickey it's absolutely like this psychedelic, like complete defeat of everything that the audience has been kind of a game and part in, in this uh, humiliation of her. And I think it, it is 
such a beautiful and affirming like conclusion to this instead of kind of the darkness that like, comes at the end of season one with like Valerie like going into the swamp of a uh, ritual reality TV humiliation and instead she's like learned to artistically humiliate herself to create something real and meaningful and also embrace what is truly important in reality which is uh, your relationship with the other and I was so touched and moved the first time I saw this. And I, I remember people like saying it was like saccharine and uh, too no. fantastical. And I'm like, that is such a diabolical and apocalyptic way to view this extremely touching and moving gesture that this show manages to pull off. Absolutely. And the the ending of the first season, which would have been a perfectly self-contained thing if they had left it at that um has valerie uh accepting that she has gained fame and attention from humiliating herself um and the ending of the second season shows that she is actually a moral and good person who values the people in her life that matter and it's like a a disturbing turn of face for like when i was watching this when it came on initially it was like i did not expect this me like I, i i did not expect that this monumental mass of cynicism would end with something so simple and humanistic as this pathetic woman wanting to be near the gay man who loved her while he died. And it's beautiful. It, it It's like Fassbender. It just like transcends beyond when uh, mickey looks up at her and says val i'm scared oh the, oh the, my the god eyes. my eyes are watering i can't handle it <laughs> 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 um, it's, um it's it's anybody could hope to have someone like that <laughs> around when they think they're dying and it's not going to be seth rogan yeah it's <laughs> Yeah, the one of the funniest things is that Seth Rogen is this plot line that's carried over from our Tusk episode to this, where he, in the comeback season two, he plays himself uh, as this, like, likable, cuddly character who saves Valerie from being sexually humiliated, and that is like just another layer of like Hollywood bullshit. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I'm not even, not even a Seth Rogen hater. I think he's adorable and I loved him on freaks and geeks. Um, But he like Sarah Silverman has made him and Chelsea Handler has made himself into the most like craven, nasty, corrupted, like childless Jewish libtard um, possible, and yeah, it's uh, the the artifice of seeing how he's depicted on this is like another layer. 
absolutely. No, I was thinking the exact same thing when I was rewatching the second season. I was like, of course, the show is like trying to like show him as like a as a nice friendly force here, but really like he's after so friendly, he's so cuddly. He's so cute when he gets her the little starfish as like <laughs> as a rap present. No, he's just so nice. Everybody else in Hollywood is mean, but Seth Rogen is so nice. Day of the Locust has a pierce to the the veil for me, and I'll never be able to see Seth Rogen the same again. <laughs> so at the very end of this uh here we have uh cringe basic woman defeating all cultural expectations to embrace her love of the gay man and uh it's filmed in soap opera dewy eyed hd and the world seems beautiful